0: You are Locked On Bills, your daily Buffalo Bills podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What's up, Bills Mafia? It's Joe Marino from the Draft Network, and I'm your host of Locked On Bills. Happy Friday to you. The Buffalo Bills have a game tonight preseason opener against the Detroit Lions. The game will be played in Detroit, 7 p.m. Eastern time, and the game will be broadcasted nationally on NFL Network. And as a reminder, I'm not going to make you wait for my post-game reaction. The podcast will drop as soon as I get the podcast done. So at the conclusion of the game, I'll start organizing my thoughts and putting together the podcast. I'll do the podcast, and then I will release it. So it will come sometime either late, late Friday, or in the early morning of Saturday, I'm talking 1, 2 a.m., so just know that a podcast is coming your way after the game, so make sure that you are subscribed and that you don't miss it. Today is Herd Mentality, the podcast episode each week where you take control of the discussion by sending in questions, comments, takes, whatever you have regarding the Buffalo Bills, and I respond to them here on the podcast. Tons of good ones to get to. Let's get started. First one today comes from Big Baller Bean Season, who says, Hey Joe, with Trubisky 99.9999% likely the QB2 this season and from being a draft pick, when does it get to the point where they offer Davis Webb a coaching position? That seems to be his role as a player slash coach, but he's never seen the field. Stop beating around the bush and give the guy a different role. Not sure if it's a logical question, but I look forward to hearing your thoughts. So I think we have a tendency to do this with a lot of players that are veterans that bring value to the team, but not necessarily as a player. And this idea that we want to keep them around, but we don't want to commit any roster space to them. This happens a lot. And so Davis Webb is a good example of that, where... You hear the coaches rave about him, you hear Josh Allen rave about him and what he means to the locker room, but you just don't want to ever have him see the field, but you want to keep him around. I think if this was a viable solution in terms of just making a guy a coach, we'd see it happen a lot more often. I think there are budgetary constraints when it comes to a coaching staff, and it's probably not as lucrative for them to just be on the practice squad. You know, if... Davis Webb winds up being a practice squad player for the Buffalo Bills. He's going to make a salary of $204,000 on the season. As a coach, he might not get that. And I think that the Bills have a limited budget for coaches like every team does. And I'm not sure that they would want to finesse that to make room for a guy like Davis Webb when they can just factor him onto the practice squad, especially with it being a 16-man practice squad. And I think for Davis Webb specifically, it's not so much that he has this incredible insight that he brings to the table that is invaluable to Josh Allen and his ability to execute the quarterback position. I think it's far more about his willingness to serve multiple positions on scout team and run uh, an opposing team's offense as a scout team quarterback or organize throwing sessions in the offseason. So I don't know that a coach role is one that would encapsulate all of those qualities that you're trying to preserve. I think those are best maintained by having him on the practice squad. The next one today comes from Paul, who says, we've talked a lot about the Kansas City Chiefs and what the Bills can do to counter them, but I feel there's a more important matchup for this season that we really haven't discussed. The Bills are building for long-term success, so I'm sure we'll have plenty of opportunities to go head-to-head against the Chiefs, but week 14... Maybe the last chance we'll ever get to take down Tom Brady and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Tom Brady's shadow has loomed over this team for two decades, and I feel like if we truly want to put the dark times behind us, then this Bills roster needs to show that they can take down the king. How do you think our current roster stacks up against this Tampa Bay team, and what do you think will be our keys to success? Love your content and keep up the great work. Thank you so much, Paul. I'm going to say something that I think might be extremely unpopular. But it's true. The Bills game against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in week 14 is one of the five least important games on the schedule, along with the other three games against the NFC South and the game against the Washington football team. Why? Because they're non-conference games. If you said to me right now, Joe, the Bills are going to lose five games this year, and you have to pick which five, I would pick the five NFC games, which would include the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Now, those NFC games do matter when it comes to your overall record, but when it comes down to playoff standings and tiebreakers, they're completely inconsequential. You want to lose games against NFC opponents far more than you would like to against AFC opponents. So with the buzzkill out of the way, in terms of me downplaying the importance of that game, let's do talk about the matchup. Uh, defensively, the Bills' defense against the, the Bucks' offense, I think the Bills have the right formula. Bruce Arians is known for the vertical passing game and deep shots down the field. The Bills' defense is known for eliminating shots down the field and playing his own heavy defense. And even in Tampa Bay, the Bills lost to Brady and the Bucks, but it wasn't necessarily because Brady was going out and having these monster games. So I think, first of all, the Bills do have the right formula defensively to match up against Brady and the Bucks offense. When it comes down to the Bills o versus the Tampa Bay defense, the Bucs are elite at stopping the run, and they have good pass rush, but I think their corners can be had. If you can spread them out and really isolate them with some matchups on the perimeter, the Bills can find success there. So I think it's a very manageable opponent for the Buffalo Bills. It's just going to come down to meeting that moment, and... Being able to show up and execute the way you're capable of against an opponent that brings a high level of urgency to the table in terms of you having to play well. You know that you have to play one of your best games to beat this team. And so how do the Bills respond to that? Do they try to do too much? Do they try to get too cute? Do they play their game? We'll see. I think that's probably the bigger question. It's not necessarily from a matchup perspective it's from an execution perspective and how they handle this type of an opponent. The next one today comes from Jimmy, who says, looking ahead to 2022, Cole Beasley will be 33 in the last year of his deal and with 6 million in cap savings, could be a cap casualty. Could Isaiah McKinsey step in as the starter next year? Reports from Camp have said his route running looks good. With a Diggs contract looming and the old age of Beasley and Sanders, I think the wide receiver room needs cheap, high-end talent. Who are your wide receiver favorites next year? I like the idea of Chris Alave from Ohio State and his savvy route running. Could have the impact of a Terry McLaurin or Elijah Moore. So, Jimmy, I'm 100% with you in that the wide receiver room needs an infusion of young talent. And that's why I was pining for the Bills to consider that even in the first round of the 2021 NFL draft. You guys remember me hyping up Elijah Moore as a player the Bills should be considering with pick number 30. And so that need still very much exists for the reasons you mentioned. Cole Beasley is aging, Emmanuel Sanders probably a one-year option. And so the Bills need to be thinking about replenishing this wide receiver room with some talent and less expensive talent. So when it comes down to options next year in the draft that at this point I'm interested in, I love your idea of Chris Olave. I think he'd be perfect for the Bills offense, really dynamic route runner, good speed down the field, good ball skills, good body control. No, he's not the biggest guy, but watch him play against Penn State and you won't be concerned at all about his ability to handle physical, long corners. He really took it to Joey Porter Jr., who was a long physical press corner, and he was completely unbothered by that length and size in that game. So if you're concerned about his size, check out the Penn State game. Um, John Mechie from Alabama, I think he'd be a perfect fit, dynamic down the field threat, good route runner, good hands. He'll be the focal point of that Alabama passing game this year. And the last guy that I'll mention is Jahan Dotson out of Penn State, who I think is an Emmanuel Sanders clone. Not a big guy, 5'10", probably 180 pounds. But three-level threat, can work inside and outside, plays bigger than his size, alpha at the catch point, strong hands, dynamic after the catch, and oh, by the way, he's a really good punt returner. So those are my three guys right now that excite me in terms of an early investment in a wide receiver in the 2022 NFL Draft. This episode is brought to you by rockauto.com, a family business serving do-it-yourselfers for over 20 years. With the ever-increasing numbers of makes and models, it's now impossible for your local chain auto parts store to stock all the parts you need. Why endure often pointless or seemingly intimidating questions like is your Odyssey an LX or an EX and wait while the person behind the counter orders the parts on their computer choosing the only brand their warehouse happens to carry. You have computers with access to rockauto.com at home and right in your pocket. Save time and save money when using Rock Auto. Why would you choose to spend 30%, 50%, even 100% more for the same parts from a chain store or car dealership? Go to rockauto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck. Make sure you write Locked On in their How Did You Hear About Us box so they know that we sent you. They have amazing selection, reliably low prices, and all the parts your car will ever need over at rockauto.com. Weak tortilla chips suck. I know it. You know it. Even the New York Jets know it, and they don't know anything. Lucky for you, I just discovered Zach's Mighty Tortilla Chips, and this company's mission is to create delicious tortilla chips that don't break in guacamole. Zach's Mighty Tortilla Chips follow the traditional process of making tortillas first before cutting and frying them into chips. Most tortilla chip brands are weak because they skip this very important step, however, The team at Zach's Mighty knows that this authentic process is the only way to make a sturdy tortilla chip. On top of it all, Zach's Mighty Tortilla Chips grows all of its organic corn at farms in the Buffalo, Rochester area. And not only are Zach's Mighty Tortilla Chips sturdy and don't break in guac, they taste incredible. Pick up a bag at your local Wegmans or Whole Foods market and say no to weak and crappy tortilla chips forever. Zach's Mighty Tortilla Chips stand up to guac. The next one today comes from Michael who says, With Star Latulale opting out, the lack of a true one technique was apparent last season. I don't think this line needs a stud in that role, but at least average to good. So with Star not getting any younger and the knowledge that Brandon Bean loves drafting defensive linemen, could one tech be something the Bills are eyeing next year? What does the 2022 defensive tackle class look like? And are there some names to watch on Saturdays? So I don't think it's a good year for defensive tackles. And a lot can change between now and the end of the season, but my preliminary look at the rising crop of defensive tackles is pretty underwhelming. And from a pure one technique standpoint, I'm not sure the Bills would make this type of investment in the first round. But let's talk about some of the options. The cream of the crop, the guy that you're looking for as a top-tier one technique, is Jordan Davis from Georgia. Massive dude. He's like you know Godzilla in the middle of the defensive line. He's the guy that can eat up blocks, never get moved off his spot, play on the other side of the line of scrimmage, and just be that big-bodied space eater that would be a dynamic one tech in the NFL. Now, there's other good defensive tackles. DeMarvin Leal from Texas A&M, he's a top-half of the first-round guy. I don't know that he really solves your issues at one tech. Perrion Winfrey out of Oklahoma, he has a lot of appeal to me as a penetration style three technique. And then Tyler Davis out of Clemson is an interesting player. I don't think he's exactly what you're looking for in a one tech though. And I'll be honest, those four players, Jordan Davis, DeMarvin Leal, Perrion Winfrey, Tyler Davis, those are the only four interior defensive linemen that are currently ranked in our TDN top 100 players entering the season. So it's kind of a light year. If you're talking later round guys, Robert Cooper out of Florida state is interesting to me as a day three player, but I'm not sure that there's premier talent at the one tech position like there was last year in terms of like Tyler Shelvin and Aleem McNeil. Those are the types of players that you can get on day two and feel like you have a, a nice option for that type of a role. Right now, those players are non-existent. Now, that'll change. Players will emerge. But if you ask me today, that's how I feel about it. Salvador says, I still remember how frustrating it was watching the NFL officials calling every little push and hand to the face when Tom Brady was playing against the Bills. He was untouchable. With Josh Allen becoming a star and getting the big contract, do you think the officials will protect him more? I'll be honest with you, Salvador. I think that officials are already protecting Josh Allen. I think Josh Allen is the beneficiary of a lot of calls. I have plenty of friends that are not Bills fans, and they already complained to me that Josh Allen complains and gets calls on the field. So I think this is already starting to happen, and with the new contract and Josh Allen's place as a star in the NFL, yeah, he'll get protected, and I I already think he is. The next one today comes from Zach who says, as we think about 53-man roster construction – I hear a lot of talk about players that restructured not being moved. I think it's important to note that Patrick DeMarco was cut last year after a restructure. First, do you think Gilliam's position change to tight end last year was a move out of respect for Pat with the move back this year being his actual position? And two, and this is a question that was very similar to one sent in by Baz, do you think guys like Addison and Butler who restructured could be traded for cap savings since those rooms are so deep. So first thing I'll say about Patrick DeMarco, you're right. He was cut after he restructured. But let's not forget that he had a neck injury during camp that led to an injury settlement and then his release. So this wasn't a simple he restructured his deal and then got cut. I mean, the guy had a neck injury that led to an injury settlement, and then he got cut and retired. So I don't know that there's parallels here between Patrick DeMarco's situation and that of Vernon Butler or Mario Addison. Now, regarding Gilliam's position switch, and if that was related to Patrick DeMarco, I don't think they're related. I think that the Bills last year wanted tight ends to fill fullback duties, and so they switched his position because they didn't necessarily want to have a fullback. And we saw that happen. Dawson Knox last year in 2020 He played 112 snaps out of the backfield. In 2019, he played two. And so I think that the Bills were looking at their tight ends as more of the hybrid-type player that they could use in a fullback role and not actually have to carry a fullback. That's what I think went into that line of thinking. And then as for the cap savings opportunities, if the Bills were to trade, and this is important, trade, not cut, trade – Vernon Butler or Mario Addison, if the Bills were to trade Vernon Butler, it would result in $4.5 million in dead cap space. So I don't really view that as a viable option. You're going to get rid of this guy, have less cap space with the benefit being that you have a spot for Justin Zimmer or Harrison Phillips. I don't know if that's viable to me. And then Mario Addison, if he were to be traded, it would actually free up a little over $3 million in cap space. So that's more interesting to me. Obviously, the Bills are deeper at defensive end. I do have my doubts about this because it certainly feels like the messaging from Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott has indicated to me that Mario Addison is part of the plan. So we'll see on that. The next one comes from Michael who says, I'm a huge fan of looking at physical comps for guys at the time they came out of camp. The Gabe Davis pick has me intrigued since it was made. I always loved how young he was making his ceiling much higher. I think I found the perfect physical comp for him in Jordy Nelson. And in Michael's email, he provided a ton of data that shows exactly why this is a very good physical comp in terms of size and athleticism. So I agree with you. Obviously, the data supports what you're saying. Michael continues to say he's already made more contributions at a younger age than Jordy did early on in his career. Do you think he has a similar career peak upside? What would he need to do to get there? And do you think there's a better comp for him than Nelson? Being such a film buff, are there things you could point to on the field that make the comparison both good and bad? So this is fun. I think stylistically they are similar in that they have size and ball skills and a modest athletic profile. They're not necessarily burners. They're guys that win down the field, but it's not necessarily because they are just faster than other players and can get behind the secondary. So I see that stylistic similarity, size, ball skills, like we mentioned. They're both modest in terms of explosiveness and yards after catchability. I do think that Nelson is a better route runner, and that is something that Gabe Davis has to find. He has to get to that level of route running that Jordy Nelson was at, because I think that is one very notable distinguishing trait that led to Jordy Nelson's career, to be honest with you a really productive career, some monster seasons. And so I think that's something Davis will need to find. And then the follow-up question to that is, will Gabe Davis command the volume of targets that Jordy Nelson did? I mean, Nelson had some seasons where he pushed 150 targets. Is Gabe Davis ever going to find the consistency at the catch point and improve as a route runner enough to warrant that type of market share when it comes to targets. So physically, very, very good comp. I think Davis has a ways to go in terms of consistency at the catch point and route running to wind up having a similar career arc, although I concede that at a younger age, Gabe Davis has found more production, so... We'll see how that plays out, but that is definitely a very good stylistic and physical comp. Riley says, going into last year, the narrative was the difficulty of the offenses and quarterbacks we were facing. Last year, the defense underperformed versus expectations, and the offense overperformed. Will we see the reverse this year? With a less daunting slate of quarterbacks, will the defense naturally perform better? Is there a way to assess the Bills' strength of schedule broken down by offense and defense versus last year? So I really like this opening question. Um, I do think that the Bills face a much less daunting slate of quarterbacks this year. I mean, they play Pat Mahomes, Tom Brady, and who? You know, like, who's that next best quarterback that they're facing? Ryan Tannehill? I mean, you're talking about a pretty weak schedule when it comes to quarterbacks, and that's why it prompted me to ask, Bruce Nolan of the Bruce exclusive podcast to come up with a strength of schedule that is mindful of QB stew. And Bruce has developed this awesome metric called QB stew that takes several different holistic measures of quarterback play and averages and ranks them together to give you a QB stew score. And I love it. It's a great metric. And so he went through and and figured out the Bills' strength of schedule by average QB stew rank, and it was pretty low. So I don't have all of that data handy right now, and I certainly don't have a comparative analysis this year versus last. But go back and listen to a podcast that he did like two weeks ago On the Bruce exclusive podcast, it's part of the Buffalo Rumblings podcast feed where he got into this, and it's very, very insightful. Riley had a second question. He said, does the expanded practice squad with veterans change the way we view roster cuts? Is a 53-man roster still meaningful, or could the Bills cut vested veterans and agree to pay them their full salary while on the practice squad? So I do think that there is an implication when it comes to 53-man roster construction, because you are probably taking into account the likelihood of a player clearing waivers when choosing to release them and hope you can get them back on the practice squad is something you're going to factor into those decisions between just putting them on the 53 versus hoping they clear waivers and you could put them on the practice squad. So I do think signability to the practice squad is, in hopes of them not being signed by another team is something you're being mindful of, especially because you can call players up like you did last year. Now, you can't just pay them more to put them on the practice squad. There is, There are caps for this. Practice squad players, they make $8,400 a week for 17 weeks if they are less than two years of experience in the NFL. If they're over two years of experience in the NFL, they get paid $12,000 per week. And so those numbers are set in stone you cannot pay a player more than another team to keep them on your practice squad. That doesn't fly, and for competitive reasons, it really shouldn't. Bet online is the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your sports action. Baseball season is in full swing, and you can track all the action at Bet Online. Get all the latest news, odds, and info for all your sporting needs, including MLB, NBA, NHL, and the UFC. Before the next pitch, head over to BetOnline on your laptop or mobile device and check out all the great sporting news, sign-up bonuses, and contest information. Don't sit in the sidelines anymore. This is your chance to get in the game. Head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit when you use our promo code LOCKEDON. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. The next one today comes from Landon, who says, it's been a while since I've asked a herd mentality question, but I've been thinking hard about what I want my future to look like lately and have come to the conclusion that I cannot fathom a future where football isn't a crucial part of my day-to-day life. I particularly love the analytics side of football. My first question is, how did you get into this industry? What did you major in, and how did you end up with a locked-on network? Secondly, how would you suggest a younger person gets into the industry My dream job is to be either an offensive coordinator or work for PFF or another similar company and work more with the statistical side of football, but have no clue how to begin or gain experience. Any advice would be helpful. So your first question is, how did I get into the industry and what did I major in in college? Let me tell you this. In in college, I majored in three different things, sports management, religious studies, and then business management. I switched three different times. And I don't think what you major in in college matters that much. If you want to do football media, then probably a journalism degree would be helpful, but I don't think it's an absolute must. And I know a lot of people that work full-time in football media and don't have journalism degrees. So how did I get into the industry? Well, I started off back in 2013 by taking a non-paid writing gig with buffalobillsdraft.com, worked with Ryan Talbot over there and some other really talented people, Dan Hope as well. And I just produced as much content as I could. I tried to stay professional on social media, networked, and formed relationships. I worked really, really hard, and I got really lucky. And I never stopped trying to learn, grow, and improve. Through that, opportunities they presented themselves, including Locked On, who initially approached me about doing an NFL Draft podcast. And so we did. We started Locked On NFL Draft And then that developed into Draft Dudes, and then I took the Locked On Bills role. And so um, through what I would say is a lot of hard work, networking, being intentional, being consistent in producing content, embracing a mindset of taking criticism and willing to grow and improve, or as Sean McDermott would say, embracing a growth mindset, all of those things I think led to where I'm at now with a little bit of luck along the way. And then my advice, your second question was, what would my advice be? My advice is simply to start. There is no excuses on creating content. There are no shortage of mediums and ways that you can put content onto the internet. So do it. Watch football and produce content over and over and over and over. And if your stuff is good, it's going to get attention. And if it gets attention, it will lead to opportunities. I encourage you to maintain a positive presence on social media. Don't be combative with people, but rather offer insightful contributions to discussions and definitely don't punch up to people who have made it. Maybe there's people that have jobs that you wish you did and you feel like you're more deserving of and that you would work harder than that person. It doesn't benefit you to swing up and try to be critical of those people and talk down to those people and talk about why you could do a better job or be critical of the way they do their job. That's not going to help you. That's not going to help you at all. It's amazing to me through this process, how many people I've known throughout the years that have gotten into positions that have been helpful to me. And because I was willing to maintain positive relationships with people that I didn't necessarily love their content or how they went about their work, but because I've maintained healthy relationships with those people been able to get to certain positions and opportunities. So be intentional about forming relationships, connect with people who are like you. You know, Kyle Krabs is somebody who I connected with very early in my process of of diving into this work. And we figured out that we were like minded people and the goals we wanted to achieve and how we wanted to do it. And we stayed very, very close. And so I'd encourage you to find people like that that you can connect with and encourage and work with and and build together with. And then never stop being a student of the game, stay committed. It took me four years before anyone offered me any money to produce content. So stay patient and be willing to put in the time and effort that it's going to take to get the attention that you're looking for that will lead to the opportunities you hope for. And then dominate whatever role you have. If you're working as a intern for somebody, dominate that role. Absolutely dominate it, own it, and do it to the very best of your ability. And then whatever comes next, dominate that role. Just keep being a good steward of the opportunity you're given and dominate it. Keep watching football, keep producing content, do it over and over and over because it's not going to stop. You better love it. You have to fall in love with the process of producing content. It's not good enough to just be happy that you wrote an article or you did a podcast or you made a video and the satisfaction that you get from being able to share that on your social media handles. That excitement, that feeling that you get from doing that and the, the feedback that you get and how that drives you, that only lasts so long. You have to fall in love with the process. You have to fall in love with researching and learning and putting together outlines and scripts and planning content and the actual work that goes into producing the content even more than you do the finished product because you're going to get burnout out. You're going to get burnout out quick if your fuel and motivation is just the finished product and how it makes you feel when you're able to share it. That won't sustain itself. You have to love the process that goes into doing that well. And here I am at this point in my life and I absolutely love it. But I still produce two daily podcasts every single day. I do two live streams every single week. I write several articles a week. I write several scouting reports every single week. And it's a fair amount of work. There's no question about it. But because I love the process of creating that work, that sustains me. My apologies there for rambling, but uh, you know I have some passionate thoughts about how to help people in this journey. Next one today comes from Bucci who says... First time entry on the offensive line. There is a competition at guard with Ford and Feliciano having the inside track to starting positions. However, Bakker started a lot of games for the team last year. My question is why Brandon Bean would seemingly prefer Ford to win the job over Bakker. I believe both players are making roughly 2 million. Is it just personal pride in wanting a draft pick to succeed and is that Ford is under contract for only one more season? A disadvantage is due to his pedigree as a second-round pick, he would likely be more expensive to re-sign than Bakker. From my perspective, Bakker just seems better than Ford on the field. Do the numbers back this up? If so, what's the deal here? I appreciate your thoughts. Well, I do think that there is some level of personal pride, if you will, when it comes to Cody Ford winning the job as a second-round pick that the team traded up to get, and that certainly plays into it. I do think that Cody Ford is more talented than Ike Bakker, and there's a higher ceiling with him. He can turn into a more impactful player if he maximizes his potential than what Bakker delivers. So that plays into it. I think that is something that goes into it just as much as Cody Ford being a draft pick. And I would say that Ike Bakker was more effective as a guard last year than Cody Ford but we're talking about a player in Bakker that is a lot more experienced at that position and experience in the NFL than Cody Ford. So that is something that I'm keeping in mind. And then also, I mean, Coach McDermott talked about the guard competition yesterday, and he said two things that really kind of match up with your question. He said, number one, this isn't about what these players have done in the past. It's about what they are right now and what they can deliver this season. So that kind of nixes the idea that, Bakker was more effective last year than Ford, and that's going to give him the upper hand. And then he also said that availability is crucial for these players. And Cody Ford's been hurt a lot, right? And, I mean, Ike Bakker has been a late arrival to camp due to his time in the COVID protocol, and then obviously John Feliciano has had his injuries. So who can stay healthy and who can be the most effective? I think they'll play the best two guys. I don't think that Cody Ford, if he's – objectively worse than Ike Bacher in camp and in preseason that he's going to get the job just because he was a second round pick. But I also think the team does want four Ford to win the job. Now he just actually has to go out and do that. Taylor says, thank you for all your hard work and great content lately. You've been killing it. Thanks Taylor. It's my pleasure. I had a question about roster construction that I'm wanting to hear your thoughts on. You've talked a lot lately about keeping seven wide receivers and, and some of the running back battles going on, and it has me wondering with how much talent we have at skill positions, why does Tywan Jones automatically get a roster spot for being a special teams ace? Are special teams really that important for this team? Bass has a booming leg that should usually get a touchback, and we don't punt the ball that much either. Are we not able to coach someone up to a replacement level special teams gunner that actually brings something to the table as a running back or wide receiver? I'm just curious how much this actually impacts games. If only we could keep more players. All right, so first of all, on Taiwan Jones, literally a couple weeks ago, Brandon Bean called him an elite gunner. So there is signal number one that Taiwan Jones is going to make the team. If he's an elite player at gunner, that matters a lot. Number two, he signed a one-year $1.75 million deal with $700,000 guaranteed. I mean, that's a pretty healthy deal to give a guy and a healthy amount of guaranteed money to give a guy that you're going to cut, right? Like, he's going to make the team. And so, what I would argue is we're talking about RB4 here. The Bills are going to keep Moss, Singletary, Breida. I would argue very confidently that Tywan Jones' impact as a gunner at an elite level is greater than than whatever production the Bills would get from that fourth running back or seventh or eighth receiver. I honestly believe that because they're not really going to play that much. I mean, you're talking about a seventh receiver. They're going to catch 10 or 15 passes. We're talking about a fourth running back. What are they going to get 10 or 15 touches for the year? Taiwan Jones is going to make an impact being consistent on special teams and being reliable covering kicks and punts. And I know that you mentioned Tyler Bass has a booming leg. Well, if you get a touchback, you start at the 25. If you can kick it and force them to return it and tackle them at the 15 or the 20, that's a big deal. And so having a guy like Taiwan Jones that allows you to use Tyler Bass's leg in such a way that you can force them to do returns and you don't just give them the ball at the 25 and you can pin them inside that, That's valuable to me. That's a lot more valuable than whatever RB4 or wide receiver 7 or 8 that you're probably just going to keep on the practice squad anyways and use in a call-up situation. Or on punt. I mean, I know that the Bills don't punt the ball that much, but they still do it, and you still need to be able to cover the punt. I mean, they're probably going to punt the ball 35 to 50 times this year. Those are still meaningful plays. Those 35, 40, 50 punts, that's probably more snaps than you're going to get from an RB4 that doesn't play special teams or a wide receiver seven or eight. So I really don't have an, an issue with this. You know, and I feel like you would get a lot of questions about the Tyler Medicaviches of the world and the Taiwan the Joneses, you know, those types of players that exist for special teams. But this is a core part of every roster in the NFL. It's critical. I mean, these are normal players. And we have to be realistic about what a wide receiver is seven or eight actually brings to the table or running back four actually brings to the table as opposed to somebody who gives you elite contributions on special teams. Next one today comes from Noah who says, I just had a quick question regarding the running back competition. I know it's still early in camp so far, but most reports say Zach Moss is taking the majority of first team reps and that Antonio Williams is also looking good. With that said, I know Moss and Williams have very similar body types and playing styles. But is it possible that Williams takes the place of Singletary on the roster if they decide to keep four with Jones and Brita? I was impressed with what Singletary put together in his first season, and I know that they invested a relatively high pick in him. I also acknowledge that he is still only going into his third year. However, I believe the Bills should keep those who are best suited to help the team. If Singletary outshines Williams, then he obviously deserves the spot over him. But I was just wondering about the possibility of a Moss-Williams show. So Antonio Williams has a lot of fans, and I think based on what he showed against Miami in Week 17, I understand it. I mean, the guy ran hard. He had fresh legs. He looked good. We're hearing positive reports out of training camp. And so if Antonio Williams is just flat out better than Devin Singletary, then he should make the team. I will never argue for player X to make the team over player Y when player Y earned the job. So I don't have any like emotional attachments to any of these running backs. Whichever are the best four that can help the team, roster them. Now, predictively, I don't think this will be the case. I think the Bills will be happy to put Antonio Williams back on the practice squad. And if there's an injury to Moss or Singletary, feel good about being able to call him up. But I'm having a hard time envisioning a scenario where predictively, I think Williams will make the roster over Singletary. All right, folks, that's going to do it for us today on the podcast. I'm looking forward to watching the Bills take the field tonight. Preseason action against the Detroit Lions. We'll get to see Mitch Trubisky and Jake Fromm and Isaiah Hodgins and these young offensive linemen. Surely we'll see the young pass rushers, all those young corners, the young safeties. I can't wait. I cannot wait for it. And then I can't wait to deliver my thoughts for you on the podcast afterwards. So don't miss it. Make sure you're subscribed, rate, review, and share the podcast, and we'll talk after the game tonight.